Let's open our Bibles to Romans 1, verses 8 through 15, and then stand for the reading of God's Word. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be un- <clears throat> I do not want you to be unaware brothers that I have often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented in order that my reap that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the gentiles <clears throat> I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish so I'm eager to preach the gospel and to you also who are in Rome You may be seated. Kirk, thank you so much for reading God's Word for us this morning. The title of the message is A Heart for the Nations, Marks of a Stalwart Missionary. This is part two, continuation of some of the things that we learned last week. And before I go any further, I want to clear the air a little bit because I received a question this week. And it was a very simple question, a basic question, but a very, very important question. What is the definition of stalwart? A stalwart person is a is a this is a it's a beefy word. You, you you're a robust person. You're a faithful person. You're an obedient person. You are a courageous person. And so, what does it look like for you and I to be a stalwart missionary? When I think about the missionary endeavor, my mind automatically is drawn to William Carey. William Carey was born in 1761, died in 1834. Carey was a a British missionary. He was a particular Baptist. One of the things I love to tell people about William Carey is he was a card-carrying five-point Calvinist. William Carey loved the Word of God. He loved to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ, for the the joy of all peoples. And he made a trip to India, and he lived for most of his adult life in India, and he actually died there. Carey is known as the father of modern missions, and he has inspired scores and scores of people to follow his lead as he faithfully and zealously proclaimed the gospel of God to the nations. For many, many years, as long as I can remember, I have been drawn to William Carey's passion for evangelism and his expectation that God would use his faithful efforts. He was credited with this very pithy statement. He said this, Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Now, if you're the kind of person that loves to put something on your screensaver, Or if you're the kind of person that loves to put a a motivational quote on your refrigerator or in your your bathroom mirror or somewhere on your car or on your desk, or how about this one? How about a bumper sticker? That would be the same. 
from William Carey. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. His book, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of Heathens, was published in 1792. And one of the primary arguments that that emerges in the pages of this book is this. Jesus commands us to make disciples. That is, Jesus commands every follower of Christ to be a missionary. Last week we saw the heart of such a missionary emerging in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. And we learn that the first mark of a stalwart missionary is this. He or she is characterized by thanksgiving. The first mark of thankfulness is undergirded, we learned last week, by a very important principle. It's a principle that I want to etch onto your minds and etch onto your hearts that you will never forget it. And that is that perpetual praise... Perpetual praise helps cultivate thankful hearts. If you rise in the morning and you begin immediately by thanking God for something, you're perpetually praising Him for all the good things in your life. Perpetual praise helps cultivate a thankful heart. And as I mentioned last week, I think we live in an exceedingly ungrateful culture. I believe that many of our churches are exceedingly ungrateful churches. We live in a culture of entitlement. Give me, give me, give me. And what is symptomatic of such a view is ungratefulness. Helping to support this principle that perpetual praise helps cultivate thankful hearts, we learned some important lessons. One, a thankful heart is contagious. Have you seen this? That when you or someone you know has a thankful heart, it tends to to influence people. It tends to impact people. If I were to ask you to raise your hand, do you enjoy being around a happy person, a thankful person? All of you would raise your hand. It's contagious to be thankful. Second, we learn that a thankful heart is free advertising for the gospel. No need to hire a marketing agent. No need to hire an outside firm. If you are a thankful person, that is free advertising for the gospel of Jesus Christ. May I remind you that people are watching you. If your heart is filled with bitterness, if your heart is inclined to being ungrateful, the watching world is paying close attention to that. Number three, we learn that a thankful heart encourages people. We will hit that theme a little bit more today. A thankful heart encourages people. And then finally, we learn that a thankful heart honors the living God. God places a premium on thanksgiving. Now today, I want you to see the remaining marks of a stalwart ministry. Number one, this person is characterized by a thankful heart. Number two, or in your notes, if you're taking notes, uh, this is not a typo. Letter B, this is a continuation from last week. uh, A stalwart missionary is a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who is consumed with God. This person is consumed with God. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 9. As Paul writes to his 
believing friends in the city of Rome, he says, For God is my witness, whom I... And I want to have you, if you mark in your Bibles, mark that word serve. It's an important word. Whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. This is a man, this is a missionary who is consumed with God. That word serve, translated serve, comes from a Greek word that literally means this. It means to worship God. Now, read it again with me. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit. What I'm trying to indicate here is that that serving God and worshiping God are one and the same. Consumed with God. I have a passion to serve God. I have a passion to worship God. And there's some observations I want to make about this very important principle. Three in particular. First, notice that this service is ongoing. It's ongoing. The word translated serve in verse 9 is written in the present tense in the Greek language. And some of you know by this point what that means is ongoing action. When you hear present tense, it means day after day after day after day. You go on vacation, you stop or you don't stop serving God. You go out with your friends, you Don't stop serving God. You hit the baseball field or the basketball court or the football field. You don't stop serving God. It's perpetual. So serving God is ongoing. Worshiping God is ongoing. Listen to a few verses where this this word emerges. Acts chapter 26, verses 6 and 7. And now, I stand here on trial, Paul says, because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they, and you can hear the ongoing action here, they serve Him day and night in His temple, who sits on the throne and will shelter them with His presence. This idea of being consumed with God, at the heart of it, is perpetual service, perpetual worship. There's a second thing. I want you to see this morning that this service is reverent. This is not a, a flippant service. This is not a menial service. Rather, this servant is reverent. The author of the book of Hebrews says this in chapter 12, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. Lutruo, that's the word, with reverence and awe. I believe that in some contemporary worship, some modern worship, some ways that we live the Christian life, we have lost the element of reverence. I want you to to remember this morning that referring to God like this, He's rad, He's my dad. There's no place for that in the Christian life. God is holy, holy, holy. God is to be worshipped with reverence and awe. There's a third thing I want you to look at briefly. Notice that this service is exclusive. When Jesus was led into the desert by the Holy Spirit, 
And he was tempted three times by the devil. We read in Matthew 4.10, Then Jesus said to him, this is at the end of this exchange, He said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. Not Buddha, not Vishnu, not Shiva, not Muhammad, not Allah, no other living prophet, no dead prophet, no other foreign deity. Rather, this worship is exclusive. We are to worship God and Him alone. Paul was so intent on serving God that he adds in this verse, For God is my witness. A witness here is the word that is translated as martyr. Most of you are aware of Justin Martyr and some of the great martyrs of the Christian faith. A witness is someone who sees an event and reports what happened. God now knows the heart of Paul the Apostle and he bears witness to his missionary heart. For God is my witness. So Paul is not only consumed with God, he is also consumed and concerned with meeting the needs of people. This is the third mark of a stalwart missionary. That Paul is concerned with meeting the needs of people. Again, verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit and the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. When you are consumed with serving God or worshiping God, you will by definition also be concerned with meeting the needs of people. You see, we need to get rid of this notion that we, we worship God in the ivory tower and we never talk to people. That's a tendency of some people. Here we see both. It's both and. We worship God privately and corporately. And as an extension of that passion for worship, what do we do? We have a passion for ministry. So I look around the sanctuary and I see people who are involved in ministry. Thank you. As I was visiting with one of the elders a few days ago, he said something very interesting to me. He said, there's great need at Christ Fellowship. There are so many ways that you can plug into ministry. I want to encourage you, if you're not plugged into ministry, as an extension of your consuming passion for God, plug in and get involved. Begin serving. Begin meeting the needs of people. Now, the service, you see, is gospel-driven. And when I say that, please remember that you will minister to the needy. Yes, you will minister to the poor. Yes, you will give a cold cup of water in the name of Jesus. Yes, you desire to see Jesus reign and for justice to reign. I have to discipline myself at this precise moment not to take a rabbit trail on the social justice issue. There is a massive controversy right now in the Church of Jesus Christ in this matter of social justice. Some are making social the notion of social justice the top priority in the church. Social justice is not the top priority in the church. Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ is the top 
priority in the church. And so, yes, you desire to see justice reign. Yes, you are concerned with the whole person, both body and soul. But this service, whenever we reach out to someone, whenever we give someone a cup of cold water, whenever we help someone with food or shelter, whatever it may be, those are all means to an end. The ultimate aim is that we reflect the glory of God. We engage in ministry to meet the practical needs of people, but it, it is all for a purpose. In 1 Peter chapter 4, in fact, we have these verses that we'll show you on the screen, but I want to have you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. And have you uh, take, take a look at what the Apostle Peter says about this very important theme. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. If you don't have a Bible, we'll post these scriptures on the screen for you. Verse 10, as each has received a gift. Stop right there. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have received at least one spiritual gift. Some of you have multiple spiritual gifts. And the question at this point is, how are you exercising your spiritual gift? As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. And if you would stop right there at the semicolon, some of you... If you're reading that carefully, you're saying to yourself, Oh, pastor, don't make me do that. Don't make me do public speaking. That's not my gig. That's okay. We get that. There's a reason. That's the number one fear of people all around the world. Some people are petrified of public speaking. But that's not the only way you can serve. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You want to be a person who is numbered among those who are seen as a stalwart missionary? Grow increasingly concerned with meeting the needs of people. There's a fourth quality here, a fourth mark of a stalwart missionary that surfaces in verse 9 and 10. We've already read it. Paul says, he, without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. That is, you are compelled to pray. A stalwart missionary is compelled to pray. There are three observations I want to make here, important observations. First, this is persistent prayer. We learned about persistent service and or worship, but now we see that this prayer is also persistent. If you like to highlight here, verse 9, Paul says, Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. That little phrase translated without ceasing comes from a Greek word that means this. You're going to love this. Jerry and Judy, this is wonderful. Unwavering resolve. I love those two words. When you think about prayer, are you a person of unwavering resolve? Paul says this in another way in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17. He says, rejoice always, pray, someone help me, without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. And so Paul prays despite setbacks. And he had many setbacks. He 
prays in the face of roadblocks. He prays in the face of opposition. He prays in the face of persecution. This is a man who is committed to persistent prayer. You could put it this way. He prays in the morning. He prays at breakfast. He prays on his way to the temple or the synagogue. He prays while he's riding on his great big donkey or camel. He prays before dinner. He prays during a trial. He prays during victories. He prays all through the course of his day, indeed all through his life. This is persistent prayer, but this is also passionate prayer. This is passionate prayer. Once again, he says that without ceasing, this is verse 9, I mention you, verse 10, always in my prayers, and this is a word you might skip over in your personal Bible study, asking, that's the word I want to focus on, asking that somehow by God's will I may at last succeed in coming to you. That word asking is coming, it comes from a Greek word that is translated to beg. To beg. Are you in the habit of praying with a begging posture? Please, 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 God. That is a good thing. That is a God-honoring thing. That is what Augustine's mother, Monica, did before he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I probably told that story 30 times from this pulpit. She prayed and prayed and prayed while he was living with a woman that was not his wife. He was committing all manner of, of sinfulness and fornication, but his mother Monica refused to give up. She was a persistent prayer. She was a passionate prayer. She was in the habit of begging God to regenerate her son. The final observation about this is that it, it was pointed prayer. And this is a basic observation because Paul specifically prays that God would grant his request to meet the Roman believers face to face. This is a man with burning missionary zeal. This is a man who we can rightly call a stalwart missionary. He's characterized by thanksgiving. He's consumed with serving God. He's concerned with meeting the needs of people. He is compelled to pray. And may I say that Paul did not merely instruct people. He did not teach as a, as a teacher only or as an apostle, but rather he modeled each one of these qualities. He lived these qualities out personally. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we see this. He says, I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. Look now with me at verses 11 to 13. He says, I, I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles." There are three very important realities that surface in that section of Scripture as we 
understand what it means to be committed to spiritual growth. The first thing, spiritual strength. Notice in verse 11, he refers to this spiritual strength. It comes from a word that is translated to become more marked or by firm determination or resolution to become established in the faith. This is what Paul wants for the Roman believers. He desires eagerly and desperately that his friends would become established in the faith. I want to read three verses where this, where this particular word occurs. The first is in Acts 18.23. After spending some time there, Paul departed and he went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. This is what Paul would do. He'd go into a city... And he'd develop relationships, he'd plant churches as you know, and he would have a passion for strengthening the disciples. Romans 16.25, now to him, we'll be there in a couple weeks, right? Wrong. Romans 16.25, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. And then the Apostle Peter says this in chapter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If we are to be committed to spiritual growth, we must build this quality of spiritual strength into the fabric of our lives. But we also have a passion to see it in those people who we are serving and ministering to and discipling. There's a second angle here, and it's found in verse 12. And that is spiritual encouragement. And I love this Greek word. It's translated as, as such, to be comforted and encouraged by each other. Read it with me again in verse 12. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. You see what's happening here is, is I encourage Kirk and Brenna. I'm Kirk and Brenna's pastor, right? Even while they're in Salem. Isn't that the case? I'm your pastor, but someone help me here. I'll ask you, Kirk, what are you going to do? There you go. So not only do I encourage my friends, but they encourage me. See, this is not a top-down encouragement process. Paul the Apostle, he's going to encourage those little Romans. No, no, no. He encourages them, but they encourage him as well. We comfort and encourage one another. I think it was last week I asked you if you have ever known anyone who had the spiritual gift of discouragement. I've met people like that throughout our 20, almost 28 years of ministry. And I actually asked that of an individual when I was a youth pastor. I said, Kelly, do you have the spiritual gift of discouragement? Just blew his mind. My wife frequently asks me, honey, do you have any good illustrations? Dream loves illustrations. And uh, sometimes illustrations are costly. Sometimes illustrations... um, You kind of have to pay for the illustration. And this illustration is an example of that. So I want to give you an illustration using a lime and a knife. And I want you to think about what it means to either encourage people or discourage people. And what I want to do is I want to take, I want to get too crazy with this, but I'm going to put this lime in this cup. 
And I'm going to ask for a volunteer. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know if I can see it. Is that Noah? Noah, come on up. <laughs> if you're going to do it, I'm going to put some more in here. I mean, I was planning on doing it. Do you like limes, Noah? You've never tried a lime? Oh, man. You... God created this. This is a fruit. It has lots of vitamin C, and it's really, really good. For... Why don't you stand up here with me, Noah? And did, did we plan this in advance? We didn't, did we? This is incredible. So, it's only a little bit, right? So, what I'm going to have you do, it's totally good for you. It's healthy. Why don't you drink that and look out at the, at the congregation? Hold on, hold on. I just, I'm looking. Are you smiling? Are you sure? How did that taste? Did, now, if, if you were all by yourself, and I, I want to be careful. I don't, I don't want to embarrass my friend, but if you were all by yourself, do you think you would have made it look something like this? No. When I drink lime, my lips turn inside out. I'll... So, thank you so much. So, Noah is braver than me, because if I drank that, I'd be puckering up and looking like I was in pain. You are amazing, Noah. That's incredible. Have you ever known someone living the Christian life, and they weren't as brave as Noah, but they're like most of the rest of you who, if, if you were sucking on lemons all day, you can tell that they've been sucking lemons. They look like it. They are discouraging, discouraging people. Raise your hand if you know someone like that. That's no fun at all. So this is probably the most practical life application lesson that we've ever learned here at Christ Fellowship. This is, and you can even write this down. This is my encouragement to you as your pastor. If you are in the habit of drinking lemon juice by way of analogy, and your attitude Shows. This is what I want to encourage you to do. I want to take you to the garbage can and dump those limes. I think I said lemons. Dump those limes in the trash can and ask God, God, how can I be committed to encouraging my brothers and sisters? Maybe that means this week you're going to jot a note to someone in the church. Maybe that means you're going to Call someone up and say, let's go to coffee. And your only aim is to encourage them. To say something uplifting. To, to thank them for their life. To thank them for their family. To thank them for their ministry. What would happen if we followed the example of the Apostle Paul and we had such a passion to, to spiritual growth that spiritual strength, that it characterized our lives and spiritual encouragement was a mark of our lives. We would just blow this community up. People would begin to see that this place is different. And I think it's happening. There's something also that happens here that emerges in verse 13. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as those among the rest of the Gentiles. We see the heart of the apostle here in verse 13, and we see his end game. We see his ultimate aim, and that is his desire and his goal is to see fruit born among the Roman believers. This word is translated, the word harvest is translated fruit. Fruit. 
The same word is used in John 15, 8, where Jesus says, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciple. No spiritual fruit, no conversion has taken place. You say, that, that is really narrow. That's just what Jesus says. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. And so it is spiritual growth that Paul the Apostle is after. I want to have you do something also very practical today. Who has a phone? Or a Kindle? Or an iPad? Or a calendar? Would someone open to September? Who's got the quickest phone here? Because I don't... Galen, do you have September before you? Can you tell me what September 8th is? That's a Sunday. So, I want to have you do this. Turn on your phone. Some of you have been watching TV on it anyways, right? Just kidding. Sorry. You got your phone, you got your iPad, you got your calendar, you got your paper calendar, whatever it is. I want to have you take your pen or your stylus or mark in your phone. I'm going to write one letter to begin with on September 8th at 9 o'clock in the morning. You say, this is a long ways away. Write Z. Raise your hand if you just said that. Raise your hand if I have no idea what we're talking about here. No one's doing it. Write V. Type V. E-R-I-T-A-S. Jessica, you're doing it. Jessica always follows along. Thank you. You got it. Veritas. No one else is doing it. There's one. I see that hand. I've never said that ever in 27 years of ministry. That's the first time. I see that hand. September 8th at 9 o'clock. We will begin a new round of Veritas classes. Now, we have classes for children. We have classes for junior hires with Mr. Veldman. We have classes for high schoolers with Nate Leibel. We have the JAM group that we just learned about a few minutes ago. But the one I want to focus on is on September 8th, we'll begin a new round of Veritas classes for adults. We're going to offer two classes. I'm not going to share a whole lot at this point, but these are going to be special classes, one geared to women, one geared to men, something we've never done before. And as your pastor, I want to put this before you. For some of you, this is going to be like painful. So just put your seatbelt on and just brace yourself. My expectation is that 100% of the people at Christ Fellowship will be there. If you're 18 years of age or older, my expectation will be that you're going to be there. Now, women can't go to the men's class. Men can't go to the women's class. Based on your gender, I want to encourage you to go to these classes. And as I was sharing with Randy this morning, I I took a walk as I did in the morning, and I was thinking about how I can kind of draw this home. Some of you say, I need the extra sleep. Some of you say, "I'm, I'm eating breakfast. Some of you say, I'm exercising. Some of you say, I come to church, but I'd rather just talk with my friends. Some of you say, I just skip it all together. None of those are valid. There, I said it. None of them are valid. And let me, let me illustrate it like this. If I were to tell you that this Friday at 6 o'clock at this church, there would be steak and lobster, not just any steak, filet mignon, lobster, fresh crab, fresh barbecued salmon, fresh fruit to your heart's delight, an amazing spread, and it's free. How many of you would be there? Oh, now you're with me. Wow. When, when, when I, I, I say that we're going to have these Veritas classes for adults, I want you 
want you to think of it like this. It's a feast. It's filet mignon. It's barbecued salmon. It's fresh crab out of the ocean. It's all the fresh fruit you could ever dream of with whipped cream wherever you want to put it on that fresh fruit with cream brulee and cheesecake as desserts and rhubarb pie, the best pie that God ever invented, right? Or whatever it is that you enjoy. That the feast will be on such and such a day and we would all be there. Yet when it comes to Veritas, how many of us have... 400 excuses why we choose not to plug in. And so I I hope this doesn't come across legalistic or dictatorial, but I see it like this. It's a feast for the family of God. It's a time when we can come and taste and enjoy and rub shoulders with men and women and learn and be challenged and be equipped. And so I want to prepare you for those classes several months down the road. As we think about this principle of being committed to spiritual growth, I want to drive home a few principles that will help us to understand this. And there are four principles. Number one, all spiritual growth comes directly from the hand of Almighty God. All spiritual growth comes directly from the hand of Almighty God. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning of verse 7. Or 5, rather. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. And so all spiritual growth comes directly from the hand of a merciful and sovereign God. Number two, and this is one that might sound simple to you, but it's, it, it's a principle that I believe is under attack in the church. And I have first-hand knowledge of this, and that is this. Spiritual growth takes initiative. Spiritual growth takes initiative. You say, what, what in the world are you talking about? If you're going to grow spiritually, you have to do something. You have to do something. There are some in the church who believe that they grow by spiritual osmosis. They believe that all they do is wait for God to zap them with spiritual power. Paul takes the initiative in Romans 1 to use his spiritual gifts to strengthen the Roman believers. That is, spiritual growth never takes place in a vacuum. Spiritual growth never takes place by osmosis. You have to get busy. You have to do something. So in the morning, you need to open your Bible. You need to engage in prayer. You need to stand on your feet and go into the marketplace of ideas and share your faith. Number three, what you'll learn is that spiritual growth also generates further spiritual growth. When you and I are consumed with spiritual growth, it can't help but spread in the local church and in the community. And I see this happening 
right now at Christ Fellowship. A verse that we've looked at many times in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15 is so instructive. Paul says, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, and I view this like this, as grace extends horizontally to more and more people, that is, kind words, acts of goodwill, encouraging notes, helpful comments, not this, right? As it extends to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. And so as we do what God calls us to do, as we are committed to spiritual growth, what happens is that will resound in glory and praise to Almighty God. Number four, never underestimate the power of a faith that is growing. Never underestimate the power of a faith that is growing. I saw this illustrated a few days ago in a young man. A young man whose faith is growing and growing and growing. Guess what happens? A faith that is growing in a young man or a young woman spreads like wildfire. In his family, in his community, in his church, and also the world. Now, William Carey understood this principle. As I said earlier, he said, Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. May William Carey's motto be our motto at Christ Fellowship. And may we, along with the Apostle Paul, be consumed with spiritual growth. There's another mark of a stalwart missionary. And it's the final mark that we'll look at that's found back in Romans chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, if you read it with me. He says, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul here is consumed with preaching the gospel. Notice two things. First, his audience. This is a very interesting audience. His audience is comprised of Greeks, barbarians, and I don't know what image comes into your mind when you see barbarians. Think Lord of the Rings or something like that. It's the Greek word translated foreigners. So Greeks and foreigners. Then there is the wise and the foolish That is a person who is not characterized by the use of reason, literally a mindless person. Paul's mandate is to preach to all those people. His audience, as we've learned in previous studies, is the nations. There is no one who is excluded. You have heard it said, likely, that you only preach the gospel to the elect. That principle is never found in sacred scripture. There's not one verse that says only preach the gospel to the elect. Most notably because none of us know who the elect are before they're converted, right? Nor does the Apostle Paul know. And so he preaches the gospel to the nations. He preaches to the wise. He preaches to the fools. He preaches to the Greeks. He preaches to the foreigners. And we follow that example in our own lives. No one is excluded. And then look at his aspiration. He says in verse 15, I love this word. He says, I am eager... That means to be filled with excitement. It means to be ready and willing to do something. What's he ready and willing to do? He's ready and willing to preach the gospel of God. Last week I shared with you a a very famous one-liner from 
St. Francis of Assisi, who said, Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. It sounds good, it looks good, it looks good in writing, it looks good on paper. The only problem is, our friend St. Francis of Assisi was dead wrong. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. So let me make the case for preaching, and we will build on this next week. See if these examples fit into what Francis of Assisi said. John the Baptist, Luke chapter 3, verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. Do you know what John the Baptist would say to St. Francis of Assisi? Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. I think St. John would have said, that's utter nonsense. We must preach. We must open our mouths. We must utter forth propositions. We must tell people the good news. Or consider the apostles, Luke chapter 9, verse 6. They departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Acts 5.42, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. You're beginning to see the problem with St. Francis of Assisi, the Lord Jesus Christ. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up. And then, of course, Paul the Apostle in Acts 15.35. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of God with many others also. Let me share my most favorite one. For all the people who have fallen under the spell of St. Francis of Assisi, what he has done, he has effectively given us permission to not proclaim the gospel. And by the way, this is at the heart of the social justice movement. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Let's get rid of that language in our minds and our hearts, because Paul the Apostle says, How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. These are the marks of a stalwart missionary, a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who is characterized by thanksgiving, consumed with God, concerned with meeting the needs of people, compelled to pray, committed to spiritual growth, and consumed with preaching the gospel. I want to close this morning by giving you a bold challenge. And I want to ask if these marks, these six marks that we have looked at over the last two weeks, characterize your Christian life. I want to ask, how do your priorities in your life and even in your ministry need to change so that your life or ministry will be a reflection of these six principles. I want to show you a picture on the screen that will be kind of hard to, to read. And those are the marks. You can review those quickly. Let's just run through those really quickly, Tom. Thanksgiving and serving God and meeting the needs of people and prayer and spiritual growth and preaching the gospel. Let's look at the final slide. And once again, this might may be a little difficult to see, but you, you'll get the point. I, uh, many years ago, began to have a, a fascination with tombstones. Tombstones. One of the things that my children and I have done, especially when we lived in La Grande, is we love to go to the cemetery. And I was asking Nathan a few days ago what his favorite memories are from La Grande. And I had about 15 things I thought he was going to say, and he didn't say any of them. Remember what you said, Nathan? 
love going to the cemetery and just talking about important things. And uh, there's something about a tombstone that causes you to sober up and to, to think and to reflect and to think eternally. And this is the tombstone of William Carey who was born in 1761 and died in 1834. And you would think that someone who is known as the father of the modern missionary movement would have this massive tombstone with basically a sermon etched on the stone, right? Before he died, he gave instructions as to what would appear on his tombstone. And it simply provides the date of his birth and the date of his death. And here's what got me. He instructed his family members to write on his tombstone, A wretched, poor, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. Period. Do you acknowledge your total dependence on the kind and merciful arms of your Savior? If that is your framework this morning then to bear the marks of a stalwart missionary like the Apostle Paul is merely a, a supernatural extension of what it means to, to fall under the loving and merciful kindness of our Savior's arms. My friends, my, my prayer is this, is that we would grow in our love for missions, both home and abroad, that when missionaries come, when they visit us, I'm just going to say what's on my mind, that we, we would fight over who gets to keep them in our homes. That's what we experienced in Legrand when a missionary would come. It was like, I'm going to take you to the mat. They're staying at our house, right? No, 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 they're staying at our house. Well, why would people do that? Because they love these missionaries. And so with Dan Newton's leadership and the team that he has assembled around him, that's one of our aims, that we would be welcoming of missionaries. That we ourselves would be stalwart missionaries. That we would have a desire to model what Paul the Apostle is, is doing here in Romans chapter 1. And as a result, God is greatly glorified. And many people see and savor the Lord Jesus Christ. The days ahead are indeed super, super exciting. I'm looking forward to it and I hope you are as well. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for... This exemplar, speaking of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, we thank you for his heart, for you, God, for the heart that is so passionate for the Word of God and the Gospel, his heart for the nations. Lord, I pray that you would help us to follow his example. May we be people who are passionate about the Gospel of God. Lord, may we have a desire for people in this community to, to see and savor the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you give us an opportunity to be a part of this grand missionary endeavor. Lord, I know that when some people hear the word missionary, there are certain images that come to their mind. I, I pray if any of those images are, are negative in any way, shape, or form, that you would eliminate those from our memory banks. And that you would replace those images with the images that we've seen in this passage. That you would give us, as we learned last week, a passion for the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the joy of the nations. 
We look forward to seeing what you will accomplish in the life of this church and in individual lives and the lives of families. Give you the glory in advance. In Jesus' name, amen.